Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LPN Show. Recorded both in Los Angeles and New York City. We're just, you know, here to hang out. Have a good time. All right. I'll talk to y'all after a while. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Welcome to the LPN Show. I am Ben Kissel, and today I am joined by an old friend. He's not that old, but our friendship is. He's a fantastic comedian. You may have seen him on the tiny screen, the big screen, or the stage. His name is Nimesh Patel, and he is with me today. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. What's up, Kissel? Thanks for having me, man. Oh, dude, it's great to see you. It's nice to reconnect. I feel like it's been way way too long because it has been it has man it has but now you're on your first tour in a minute dude you're in arizona how's everything going everything's everything's coming up patel in uh 2021 (laughs) so far is that the name of your first sitcom everything's (laughs) coming up patel and you're like well it's a little long but uh all right yeah i wish man i wish they were buying patel sitcoms uh they ain't buying they ain't buying shit these days Unless Mindy Kaling's selling it. I not, you know, they ain't buying nothing. No diss on Mindy. She is a machine. She's working, man. It's fucking crazy. But, you know, there's other Indian people out there, NBC and Hulu <laughs> and Netflix, all you motherfuckers. But uh things I mean, no shade on anybody, but uh I'm I'm having fun out here on the road. This is my first tour and fucking it's about time. Dude, how's that been going? We just did our first show in Grundy County at the caverns and it was awesome to step back on the stage but at the same time i was talking with uh, henry and marcus i was thinking like move your feet <laughs> look at the crowd like your brain and then the second show is like oh wow i can actually explore jokes because my brain isn't like how fat do i look from this angle yeah it's just so strange to be back in front of people how is that adjustment Bennett? do you just kind of i mean what do you, you just gotta hop in you just gotta do it so it is what it is it's fresh out the frying pan into the fucking fire kind of situation but in new york at least shows start illegal shows or legal shows started happening a lot earlier than they did in new york so there was a little bit of time to get your feet wet yeah what happened with the what what, what was it with the prohibition era comedy where everyone was going underground to do stand-up again. It must have felt like Lenny Bruce. It must have felt like the, the FBI was going to go hunt you down or something. Uh, that was so crazy, all, all the illegal underground comedy shows. It was so wild. None of that. That shit was illegal the same way like prostitution is illegal. You know, it's like everyone's fucking doing it. No one really gave a shit. Everyone's looking the other way. 
uh, it just felt, oh, technically we can't be here, you know? It must have been kind of cool, to be honest, because all comedians by nature do uh, fancy themselves lawbreakers. We were, we, I mean, I didn't I didn't produce any shows. I don't think, I, I don't recall producing any uh, uh, prohibition shows, but it did feel at one point, we're like, all right, the cops may at some point close this down, but they're, they're just cops being assholes because they hit quotas. But yes. at some point, it felt like they all gave up once de Blasio said you couldn't beat up black people anymore. They're like, fuck you, we'll let uh, every illegal show happen. You know what I mean? A positive, uh, unintended consequence <laughs> of the horrific violence against the African-American male yes. is that Nimesh Patel could put on comedy shows. That That's great. I'm just so happy that the struggle is real for you. Well, life is about balance, man, you know? <laughs> Uh, but it was it's been fun man i, I don't i can't oh, uh, awesome. i can't say i i kind of try i saw the coronavirus pandemic whatever as an opportunity to sort of adapt and be like all right well if we can't be on stage for a while let's see what else i can get better at and i just wrote a shit ton so when i hit the stage i had time i had a lot of shit to talk about so you actually did something productive while sitting at home i i learned multiple ways to jerk off i learned <laughs> uh, different ways to sit <laughs> But you actually wrote, which is, uh, I guess that's what we were supposed to do. Sit, think, and write. Yeah, I tried. I tried. And then, and then at some point, I was like, I haven't experienced any new life beyond what I've written because every day is this fucking same. Right. And then you just realized that you just wrote a death scree. And it's really, if anyone actually read that, you'd be definitely on a list. <laughs> You're late, People man. might think, I mean, it's, yeah, we're definitely all on a list. But you did, you know, we were talking, or I just mentioned it in a sentence, but I've known you for a long time. And one of the things you used to do is 10 years. And one of the one of the shows you used to do was at Matchless, Bar Matchless. You and Michael Che hosted a show every Monday and it was so much fun. And uh, it was one of those shows. It was hip. It was cool. Uh Even Kevin Barnett went. That's how cool it was. Barnett bombed there more than anybody. And and Mike Denny. Don't forget Mike Denny. Mike Denny was also. Yes, of course. He started the show. Camp, it wouldn't have been broken comedy without him. He carried the broken part of that uh, moniker pretty well. Uh, <laughs> For those that don't know, Mike Mike Denny is a fantastic man, great comedian. He's one of those guys who he could go on stage and he would just, it seemed like a breakdown. But at the same time, he was in control enough to make it art. Yeah, yeah. He's he's now producing for uh, like West Side Gun and... Um, uh, what's I forget this other guy like a, a pretty he's, he's a music producer now he's doing like crazy shit hell yeah good for you mike denny yeah. i love that dude i'll have to talk with him sometime yeah yeah I'm, when you were doing it with mike and che mm-hmm. then che got snl as you guys were still doing this bar matchless mm-hmm. was that hard to keep him on there on mondays because i remember all of my friends that went over to snl it was like all of a sudden to even speak with them you had to go through like some sort of pr <laughs> hr some <laughs> shit but Che was still able to do the show with you. I guess he had a little bit more wiggle room because, man, that SNL thing seems like I'm not going to make any comparison to any actual atrocity. It just seems like a shitty day job. It's uh, you know, luckily for us and for Che and for anyone else that works there uh, on Monday. Mondays is usually the, the lightest night uh, so because Monday is pitch day. Right. And so you would go and pitch your ideas and then typically you would either write up that idea that night or then come in Tuesday with a brand new idea and then write that one for the show. And so Trey on two Mondays, which is when the show was, would either be late or show up after dinner or some kind of shit, you know? So luckily it worked out for us. Yeah. And it worked out that, uh, uh, when he got the show, he was all, his profile as a standup was also rising. And so that just made more and more people come to the show. Yeah. 
and uh, it was great. How was the experience of of because uh, I used to do a show with Ed Larson called Dog Shit, of course, and it was super fun and it was hot for a while, uh-huh. aka about a month and a half <laughs> before the drink tickets ran out. <laughs> but how was it like uh, just getting to learn New York City comedians, getting to meet everyone, and in the context of running a great show like that? Because you all just had such a great you know cast of people that came through and everyone knew that this is a hot spot to be on Mondays. Mm-hmm. If any big headliner was coming through, they knew they could pop in and there yeah. would be a crowd, which for those that don't know, if you build it, oftentimes they don't come. Uh-huh. Um, so you just show up and you're like, oh, this is the stand-up show and it's in front of one bartender who is livid that you walk their regular customers. Yep. And then you just have to go look like a jackass on, on a stage, a.k.a. the corner of a, of a room somewhere. <laughs> but you really had the opportunity to run a hit show. We, you know, that was... That was just pure. That was pure luck and pure stick to itness. You know Ooh, what I mean? Like we, yeah. you, you, you definitely saw us when it was when Murderfist went up to eight people in that fucking room. You know what I mean? Like you definitely, you definitely saw us go through being a bar show where we would walk everybody <laughs> to becoming the fucking yeah. show where Trevor Noah would drop in. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was that kind of rise, but that was just because we were there. And other, and the bar had nothing else going on on Mondays. Yeah, <laughs> and there's like, yeah, just go there. And just, if you guys are drinking, so exactly. So at the very least, we're making your money. So that was that ended up being just like our hang. And I think back on that show all the time because it was like, think about who came through there uh, that is now doing crazy shit. You guys. Wolf, Che, Trevor. Oh my gosh. Like, I'm fucking, so proud of all everybody. Of them. The Lucas Bros, like uh. everybody, Jermaine, like Zabral, anybody that was anybody that in New York comedy at that time came through that show and knows matches intimately as a place where, yo, you would bomb or you would fucking murder or either way, you were going to be fucked up uh, at the end of the show and you're going to have a great fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The show really I started remember. at 1030 in the back room. That's when our friend Molly would show yeah. up. And man, she was great. And I will never forget when uh, when KB gave me a bag of Molly. And uh, I was like, how much should I do? Uh-huh. And he's like, just do the whole thing, man. But he was joking. And I didn't know he was joking. Oh, my so then God. I did, the whole bag of, I did the whole bag of Molly. And then I uh, I was in. We were at a bar called Rock and Rolla. And the men don't. Men's bathrooms are disgusting. And I just immediately had to take a massive shit. And I was like, oh, no. And I was around all these people who I was like, I really want to impress these people. And I was like, I'm going to go take a big dump. And uh, that's really what drugs are. But after you do that, then you have a great time. Then you have the best time you of know. your fucking life. Speaking of, I was just in uh, Miami for my cousin's bachelor party. And I finally, I've been a big fan of, of Molly for quite a while. Uh, but. I had never up until this point ever experienced the Suicide Tuesdays everyone's talking about. What's that? So so Suicide Tuesdays, you never had it? I oh, get you're a big fucking guy. So. Suicide Tuesdays? No, I, I, I made it to Wednesday. <laughs> so, so the way Molly operates is that it depletes all, it, it releases all the serotonin in your brain. Yes. So all of your happiness chemicals have been released. So once that that level falls to zero, you experience really dark thoughts yes and i had i had never experienced that before but on monday when i got back from miami my i had done 2x the amount of molly that you're supposed that i was supposed to do i felt fucking invincible you know oh my come on monday i'm i'm like experiencing like this malaise 
And then as I'm falling asleep, I start twitching. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck is going on? I yeah. look it up and like, oh, oh, yeah, this will happen when you're coming down on Molly. And like, this has never happened before. And that night I had night terrors. Tuesday I had night terrors. Last night I had night terrors. Finally today I have some clear headedness. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I've never experienced that before. Well, be careful, bro, <laughs> yeah. because, man, that's not to get too dark. But, you know, that's why I'm not ready to have a gun because <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm still like I still might go to Vegas and do a whole series of drugs and have one of these suicide Tuesdays. And mm -hmm. I, you know, a knife, you look at it and you're like, I am actually too bummed to even try to stab myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm not Artie Lang. I don't have that kind of rage. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. The gun makes everything too easy. Dude, thank God. Thank God. I didn't have access to any any sort of uh fatal weapon monday and tuesday because tuesday tuesday was bleak tuesday i was just like i cannot i regret every decision i've ever made <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, it, and it would come in fucking waves yeah like, dude. It, you know molly comes in waves too like you experience like right a general fjord and then you're like super high but the, the 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 opposite comes in waves too i was just taking a shower and out of nowhere, I had this thought that like everyone I love and know is going to be dead and I will have nothing to do about it except experience extreme sadness. Sure. And I was like, I, I, I can't do Molly again to that level for at least three weeks. Dude, so, at, at least three weeks. Well, that's that's yeah. a very conservative <laughs> estimate. Very good. I, I'm happy that you've grown from the experience. I can. And you're going to give it a solid 21 days. Before you contemplate suicide again, <laughs> it's good. That's bro, very healthy to me. I'm, I'm telling you, seriously, <laughs> like, yo, I, I'm not going to touch that shit for quite at least till the end of the fucking summer. When it comes to all of that stuff, you know, I've really taken it easy as well mm -hmm. because our brains, we're getting older. Yeah, man. And the mush is just getting mushier. It's coming. And it is harder to bounce back. I was talking to my buddy recently because, um, I've been trying to cut back on my booze a little bit, but one thing that I have fallen in love with is tequila. <laughs> and the only problem is tequila is not a downer, which is great, but that means you can drink copious amounts. You'd be like, I think I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. And then I'm learning as I get older, my hangovers, it's not like physically bad. It's just emotional. I get like emotional now when I'm hungover and I was looking at my dog Puffin and I was thinking something similar to you, but you were th thinking about human beings because you have a soul. And I was looking at Puffin and I was like, no, one day, Puffin, you're not going to be with me. And then I had to I had to like force my brain. I was like, no, I'm not even thinking about this shit because I'm going to get him stuffed. I'll put a robot brain inside of him. He's never going anywhere. He's going to be with me forever. Thinking like I was in the Sawyer family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre trying to keep, keep grandpa alive. I mean, you got to be careful with your brain. Yeah, man. I, I've, I, I've, I definitely felt the holes in it happening. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm like, I can't, like, I don't, I've, I was talking to my cousin, a doctor, and I was just like, I don't know how to articulate this, but my brain feels dry. Weird. Like, like there's no connections happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, for the first time ever yesterday, I stared at something and I had no other thoughts. It was very meditative. But in like a slightly concerning way, I was just like, I've never experienced that before. Where I could just, I, I literally stared at a, a a bottle of ointment or whatever on my counter. And I was it's like. It's a bottle of lube. Let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah, lube, sure. Bottle of ointment. Yeah. <laughs> no, if it, if it was lube, I definitely would have had some other thoughts. But it was like, <laughs> I, was just, I was just staring at this bottle and I had nothing else to think about. And that sounds great, but I've never had that before. I'm like, 
I did something. There's definitely fucking yeah, dude. Synapses that have been snapped thanks to the jet. Like my, I was so happy. My brain was like, "This is it. Uh, you don't never experience. You don't need to experience happiness. This is good again." Yep, brutal. Everything in moderation, including happiness. Yeah. Evidently, yeah, apparently. which is nice. But the first time I ever did Molly was at Nashville. It was. It was. It was. It might have been New Year's or some shit. The Lucas. I was like floating around. And uh, the Lucas Bros had like a cup of water, and uh, I was gonna get some water. I took it, and then and then I th- it might have been Keith was like, "Hey man, that's got Molly in it." I was like, "All right." <laughs> and, and then, <laughs> I was like, I, "I mean, I've already fucking swallowed it. Might as well embrace it." And that was a fantastic, fantastic Molly evening. Yeah, dude. Uh, but I never, I never chased that until recently, probably in the last like two or three years. Like, I want to do this quite often and I, i'll probably do like once a quarter that's good uh, but even that i'm gonna yeah, cut down i do like that you you think about all of these things in very fiscal t- in terms <laughs> of like quarterly you know we don't work in an office but that's all right i like it yeah yeah, yeah man i mean th- there's a reason the government breaks it down something that way I, I should do it the same way yeah dude how did you handle all of this bullshit with all of the uh i mean obviously we had five years of insanity and technically things are still insane but they're slightly more sane how did you navigate all the um, different social movements and stuff like that? Because I know you were, you did one college show that is sort of infamous, mm-hmm. which I don't even understand. People were like upset about something, which that happens, I suppose, especially at the collegiate level. Brains are still forming. People don't really know how to interpret things that are not extremely clear and binary. Yeah. Um, how did you navigate all of this madness? Do you, because uh, a lot of people are like, this is going to be great for comedy. Trump and Trumpism is going to be great for comedy. But I personally thought it was a colossal pain in my fucking ass. I I, I second that giant pain in your ass. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> <laughs> like, so I started, I was at SNL for one year, right? Like uh, at Update. Oh, you were there. Yeah. At you update. were you were writing for them. Yeah. At Update. Oh, no for shit. Like 2017 to 2018. Like awesome. the full first year of Trump's presidency. Uh, like the Stormy Daniels shit, and right. uh, uh, the I forget. I, this is how crazy. I don't even remember Michael Cohen. I, I didn't even remember that guy's name just now. Yeah, dude. Like that's how that's how uh, annoyed of all of it I was. It was like you could you could see at some point that it was the media just feeding the same machine over and over because that's all everyone wanted to hear and talk about. Yeah. And at some point at the show, I was just like, who the fuck cares about? $136,000 to some fucking big titty porn star. Like, right. we don't get this, doesn't affect policy at all. We already know this guy's a piece of shit. That was the only positive thing about him. He had consensual sex and paid her. Yeah. That was the only thing where I was like, he actually did that. Not that wasn't even bad, yeah. technically. And then Michael Avenatti, this scumbag who everyone pretended like was a saint. And I'm like, look at this motherfucker. Are we supposed to pretend that he's a good person, dude? Yeah. That, that His name is Michael Avenatti. That was the time where I was like, I I remember distinctly while being on update being like, once this is done, I'm never reading the news again. Like, I don't give a fuck about any of the <laughs> shit. No, the world hasn't changed in the slightest. Uh, like the social movements are great. Yeah. Obviously, Black Lives Matter and, and the feminist movement, all these all these things that help towards progress are fantastic. But the minutia yeah. of all of it is completely unnecessary. Who the fuck cares? Who, like the, every the, every day you got to care about this shit. I can't. It's impossible. Stop. I'm not uh, I'm not cool enough to work at SNL, but I <laughs> am un, I am uncool enough to write for a show called Red Eye on Fox News. 
Um, so I produced that and I wrote for that in 2016 uh-huh. or 2015 going into 2016. Is that with uh, Shalou? That was with Tom Shalou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom is a good, he's a nice man. Okay. And I will say that about Tom. <laughs> hey, mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But the one thing that I learned was so fascinating about, you know, the creation of media, Mm -hmm. the creation of narrative, the lie by omission, television news in general, and uh, just the uh, dissemination of information and how it's, it's, it's not this, it's not as nefarious as people think it is. It's actually so much dumber. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's also a problem because there's 24 seven, seven days a week, forever and ever media. But they're covering dog shit, as you just said. There's so many different issues. The border, which is no longer discussed. Anyway, when it comes to writing for SNL, did that was that interesting to see like the other side of it, to see, you know, how the sausage is made and how things get to TV, what is aired? Because I know with SNL, they caught a little bit of flack because I don't know if they normalized Trump, but he they put him on. And he didn't look like a. They made they humanized him in some ways, and I think they tried to do that with Hillary as well. Whatever it might be, but did did you? How did that impact your your um, just understanding of media and how we consume it when you saw the presentation and then people absorb it and you're like, wow, y'all are stupid. I think uh, to me, I went in knowing almost oh, this is all nonsense anyway. There's all this is just this is all just so every. Rupert Murdoch and the head of NBC, whoever can collect a few ad dollars on whatever the fuck we're selling. Right. Right. That's, I kind of always knew that, that going in. So I was always a bit cynical about anything that we put out. It, it all, what, what always, what always made me mad and not at the show, but just mad in general is how easily people bought all of it. It's so crazy. In terms of how, how easy, like, it's so easy to just be like, oh, this Fox News story is complete nonsense, or this NBC story is complete nonsense. Like, they're clearly very biased uh, uh, towards whatever they're pitching. Why am I listening to any? And all of the ad dollars go to the same people. Yeah. And to me, but that's, <laughs> that's the same, that narrative for all of us hasn't changed, but people have yet to accept all of it. So, uh, I always went, I went in with a bit of like arm's length about how all this is happening and what we were actually doing. To me, the biggest frustration was just, uh, was actually, can we talk about something else? Yes. You know, can we, can we, can we, I I wasn't in a position to, to dictate what we talked about, obviously. Right. Yeah. I was the youngest or, or the, the least right, the least tenured writer there, but even still like, 
I uh, I was just I could feel the the frustration was felt amongst the entire staff. Yeah, I, I it felt to me that everyone was just like, you get Trump fatigue or that news Ugh. story fatigue. I feel like I'm watch when I watch Che and Jost now that you know we don't have this fucking lunatic as president. Yeah, they seem so much more uh relieved almost yes. <laughs> to just talk about fun funny shit you know they're not the news yeah. you should not get your news from a thing that says comedy in it, you know yes and dare i say you shouldn't get your news from anything that is basically on television yes 100%. Uh, because again it's all it's all just there to move revenue and add dollars to sell colgate exactly well who doesn't love toothpaste <laughs> when it comes to representation on snl were you there during what was the scandal oh my goodness i'm blanking i don't follow this stuff because i find it to be so meaningless but there was a comedian that was in trouble uh he was cast on snl and then he was oh, in shane? trouble because he had some uh shane yeah, and yeah what's yeah. his last name shane gillis shane gillis so yeah. this guy shane and i don't know him at all i'm I, whatever i wish no ill will towards anyone mm -hmm. But did you feel like, why weren't you on screen? You're a handsome dude. You love Molly. <laughs> why weren't you on screen when it comes to like, this is, oh God, I hate Hollywood so much. Like the Oscars mm -hmm. and all of these award shows where they're celebrating diversity. It's all just white people yep. trying to like, it's all dog shit. It's all virtual signaling, virtue signaling nonsense. And it's, it's hypocritical. It just drives me insane. But why were like, I don't know, get get your ass on TV. <laughs> I mean, Did you go to Lauren and be like, look, you need me. You need a Patel. Where are the Patels? I wish I could have bars into Lauren. I met I saw Lauren like twice my entire time there. He seems like <laughs> so, like a Bill Belichick. Like it's such an ominous. That dude just seems freaky to me, man. I, 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 I only know the lore of Lauren, but from, you know, hearing from Jay and the guys like he's great and super funny. And uh, I'm sure some there's some truth to the myth and the legend i'm sure I, i've only i've only experienced the myth and the legend i have not experienced the man so i can't comment on that but uh i wasn't there when shane was there or when shane got hired and fired in the same week or whatever i think i was there uh, i was there a year or two before and so uh there wasn't even talk of i mean there's always talk of diversity on camera diversity at snl diversity yeah. this diversity that but at the end of the day like no one but Lorne makes the decision and what inputs are going into Lorne's decision. Who the fuck knows? Right. I don't fucking know. I, I doubt anyone besides Lorne and people who are on his level at the C-suite level know what decisions go into that. Uh, and the, I'm, I'll say the reason that there aren't brown people on camera there or a lot of other places is because places are slow to realize that brown people spend money on things right and so if if we're on camera we may be interested in buying what comes after us being on camera but you know that just takes time like and on top of that yeah i kind of i was harking back to what keenan said when there was that huge controversy like i think like six or seven years ago he said something about and i'll paraphrase it because i don't remember exactly but it was like there just aren't enough funny black women and he wasn't saying that black women aren't funny or that there aren't that uh, uh, we don't go out and search for them on purpose. He was just saying, like, the level of talent you need to be at that show has not been cultivated enough 
such that there are enough people that can be put on the show. Well, I don't and know if that's exists. particularly true. I, I, I don't know if that is it. Is it really that elevated? Is it that elevated to get on SNL? Like, do you have to? I don't know. Do you have to be that talented? I can't speak to uh, the recruiting process. I'll take Joel Johnson on there. I'll take, you know, um, so many different people. It's a hard uh, James on there. There's so many great comedic actresses out there. Janelle James. You're you're not you're not uh, uh saying anything I disagree with. I I but I that there are talented people, but from what I know, and again, I'm not in the casting process. I just know that what's required of the actresses on that show, there's probably not a lot of them that exist at that caliber. And for one reason or another, some of them they don't get cast. I don't know how many incredibly talented uh indian american men and women there are that could be on that show well that's the question though then because you know when it comes to access and when we talk about um oh when we talk about uh you know having uh oh my goodness what's the term that i'm looking for not unity I'm thinking of a term where everyone is equal. I think it's called equality. <laughs> it's about uh, it's about access, right? And it's about opportunity. And then everyone has the same opportunity to succeed or fail. Yeah. And I feel like there just hasn't been a lot of outreach, you know, to certain groups. And that's why people will say, oh, no, there's just no one there. And it's like, no, it's because there hasn't been that door because maybe they don't think they move Tide commercials as well I, as a, a Colin Jost or whatever. But I don't, obviously, as we just said, you know, I think that's wrong. I would hope it's more that I, I feel like at some point, this is this is my rudimentary understanding of how I imagine the what's happening behind the scenes is. At some point, there's like, there's like, let's say, Second City and, and uh, uh, what's that? Upper UCB. UCB and all that shit yeah. that are like feeder programs. The people that go into those programs aren't are majority white people. And as as more Indian and more black people go into those programs, more Asians go into those programs, then the those are the programs that the uh, recruiters like SNL and shit will go find their talent. Sure, I understand that UCB... For anyone getting into the arts, just be very careful with UCB. <clears throat> I don't understand how it's not officially characterized as a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, it just makes no sense at all because you pay so much damn money to go how to learn to be funny. But, you know, you can just do that by putting on a show and figuring it out yourself. You don't need to take classes. Right. It's such a strange way to learn the arts through a very, like, structured process. And then, of course... If you never move on, they'll take your money no matter what. There were some people that were in the uh, in the classes that were obviously not going to move on, and they would say, well, you never know. Come back, and then you can get in one of these teams. I'm like, you're not putting this person on a team. You know, he's 55 years old, dude. It's not <laughs> happening. It's over. But they just continue to uh, feed into a narrative that made them some money, although I don't know what UCB is up to now. I have but no when it idea. Comes to Indian, when it comes to Indian Americans, which is you, mm. where is the representation? Because right now, the only thing that is really out there is the problem with the poo, and I would love to hear your <laughs> thoughts on that. Because, I, I, you know, again, I'm I'm going to come from my perspective, so uh. I don't I don't know. Was that a problem with you? Did you Were you pissed? Because I'm pissed at the Simpsons for their tall guy representation, that tall-ass <laughs> dude who just says, stop laughing at me. Like and he's got a tiny car guy. and shit. I'm yeah. like, where's all the tall representation? But obviously things are a little bit different. 
uh, when it comes to race. But did, did you have a problem with the poo? I'll answer the first question first. Uh, where's the Indian represent, representation overall? I think we're I think we're coming. I think uh, I think we're making waves. I agree. Slowly but surely. Um, Asians, too. Uh, I'm, I can't wait to have a, 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 a gay Indian woman. Uh, counter uh, uh, aside from uh, Bo and Yang on SNL at some point, I think that'd be fucking dope. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and you know, Lily, the Lily Singh show, which I was a writer on, you know, for like uh, eight weeks or so, was a, a good foray or at least a start into uh, Indian people being on television on network television. Yeah, I had no problem with Apu, uh, because the problem it seemed that hurry and anyone else that had a problem with the poo but say was that they were mad he was a, a convenience store clerk and that he talked like that and that when they were kids uh people would make fun of them uh and say oh you're a convenience store clerk and you talk like a poo it's like my dad worked at a convenience store and my dad was a cash register or man a cash register at a liquor store so when some, I didn't think that was a problem right. working at a fucking, as a cash, as a cashier, like, what are you talking about? That's right. That, right. That, that's what bothers you about a boo. Like that's, that stereotype bothers you. It's a like good job. It's, it's, he owns a business. That's my dad. <laughs> He's a boss. <laughs> you're, talking, yeah, exactly. you're talking about my dad. I would, I would definitely say the choice that Hank Azaria made to fucking give him that goofy ass, hyper exaggerated accent. Uh, you could have a problem with sure. Uh, uh, cause if he had, chosen to sound if he had like gone to instead of wherever the fuck he went lost somewhere in los angeles to get interview and steal the voice from for a poo if he had went to east orange new jersey and listened to my dad the cashier talk he would have said a poo would have sounded like i do right now right right you know what i mean like so that would have been a much more funny choice for a character in my opinion right so my problem my problem with the poo was the problem that that they say oh we got made fun of as kids because of a poo right and, it's like that doesn't seem like it's a problem with the poo. That seems like it's a problem with the kids that you were around and you should have told them to shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, like step up for yourself. Don't fucking be mad at uh, a character that some people see as, oh shit, yeah, fuck. My dad does work at like a store or a cashier and, and is a pretty cool dude. What do you think about uh like obviously Hank Azaria? Uh-huh. He's a white man. Uh-huh. Uh what do you think about him um voicing a a, a brown character? Uh, now we're sort of in this area where people are trying to get more diversity and one of the ways to do it would be to properly cast if it's a vo that character but or you know henry does some great character work character actors are character actors they do character work that's what they do they're supposed to transform themselves and so you don't want to be inhibited uh, inhibited or inhibitive when it comes to the arts but what do you think about like oh, a white fellow or any race switching and uh, and doing different voiceovers because it seems like that's a conversation now. I think if uh, if some person exists that can do the voice that the person who created the character is seeking, then that person should, and the person happens to match the skin tone, and it's a human that they're playing, and that person happens to be the same color and skin, then they could bring that sort of uh, uh, intangible quality to the character. Yeah, then great, but. And you can be mad at 1993 Matt Groening to not go out of his way to find a fucking Indian guy who can do the voice. I, I doubt there was a single Indian actor that could that could do voiceover in the United States in within Matt Groening's purview to play that character. 
So, I mean, I don't know if there was, if they said, fuck you to some Indian guy and get it, gave Hank Azaria the job, then that's a problem. But I don't think that's what happened. Right. Now, how you even go about replacing that? Sure. Yeah. Get Utkarsh to do it or get some other Indian person to do it and, and have the same voice and delivery and stuff like that. Like, that's a cool change, but you're not moving my needle. I'm not feeling, oh, problem solved. Right. <laughs> like, you know, like what, what, what are you correcting beyond giving an Indian guy job over uh, a white guy job, which I'm all for. I think Indians should have all the jobs. And I would, I would, <laughs> <laughs> I'll happily be Colin Jost, you know, like there's no problem there, but like, but seriously, it's like, what are we rectifying? Uh, uh, if you fire Hank Azaria and give the job to me, you know, like, are we actually changing anything for real? I don't know. I don't think so. I think you're just firing somebody. So the three people who are mad about something can feel a little better about themselves. But beyond that, I can't find a, a non Seattle, non deep Queens, Indian people that are actually mad about that shit. Right. Yeah. It is interesting. You wonder if it's a, one of those superficial fixes and then everyone pats themselves on the back and they're yep. like, I think we solved it. And it's like, why is there Asian hate? Why is there rise of, of anti-Asian sentiment? What's going on? We changed the cast of The Simpsons. Right? Yeah, that fucking, uh, that Apu change really stopped uh, some guy from yelling out coronavirus and 9-11 and punching someone in the face. You know, that really fucking, you, you did it, guys. You solved it. Being an Indian American, obviously, there's a lot of, uh, when, you're, when people are bigoted, oftentimes they're not intelligent en enough to even know the the race of people that committed certain crimes. <laughs> right. I, I'm uh, obviously thinking of the Saudis on 9-11, but then I'm thinking about this guy in Wisconsin a couple of years back who shot up a Sikh temple. Oh, yeah. The Sikh religion, one of the most peaceful religions that there is on Earth. Mm -hmm. Literally glorious people. And he thought they were Muslim. And it's like, you didn't even check. <laughs> you didn't even check. And you shot up a Sikh temple. And not that it would have been right, of course, if it was a Muslim temple. It doesn't right. even matter. The point is that bigotry is so blinding and so stupid. Have Did you experience... After 9-11 and then what we're seeing right now, because I do think, you know, the coronavirus, uh, the president, former president calling it China virus, all this, that and the other. It definitely stoked a lot of freaking anger, mm -hmm. st stoked a lot of fear. And it's made people, you know, whatever. When people are scared, things can get scary because yep. people tend to lash the F out for no freaking reason. Did you uh, has there any been is there any comparison that you see to those two things, especially in your personal life? Because. Now you might be Asian to somebody. They might look at you and you're like, I'm not, I'm not from Saudi Arabia and now I'm not Asian. How am I constantly being beat up for these reasons? Or of course I don't not know. physically. I can't I can't say with uh any sort of honesty that I ever experienced that kind of 9-11 racism that a lot of other brown people experience. I grew up when 9-11 happened. The one time the one thing I experienced was on the day of uh, when the towers fell. This Spanish kid, like uh, a friend of mine at the time, like walked past me and shaking his head and said, you're fucking people, man. And I was just like, my people? What are you talking, brown? Brown high schoolers? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that, that, yeah. that's the one time I, I remember it. And I'm not trying to discount the real shit that a lot of people went through because I know a right, lot of right. my close friends did get impacted by that kind of shit uh, where it was just pure ignorance fucking... Uh, uh, coming out but now I'm just like I'm, I'm working on a bit about it where it's just like where I see Asians 
of all kinds experiencing this coronavirus 9-11 moment of their own. It's just like, right. welcome to the club, guys. <laughs> you know, it's just like, welcome to the club of people who get beat up for no fucking reason. Uh, uh, we've been waiting. You guys have had a pretty good ride so far. Uh, uh, that, you know, this, will, this will pass. You talked about, I thought it was interesting, you talk about how, you know, obviously we're just, television is there to move ads and mm -hmm. how, you know, people need to realize that brown people buy things. But if you look at the if you look at uh, the demographic of like the Asian American experience, they tend to be a little bit more economically stable as well as, you know, Indian Americans. And there was a large people used to used to uh, say well, there's not a lot of black representation because the market's just not there. And people would blame the market. They would oftentimes scapegoat, scapegoat capitalism in some ways to be like, see, so that's why anyone who like people still make the argument about like slavery be like you know it was about economics it uh, wasn't about hatred i'm just like if you can't like i'm not even gonna, what is wrong with your mind dude right. um but when it comes to the buying power true true buying power of groups of people it's interesting that you know asian americans and indian americans they should be more represented based upon if you want to go by the economic model just based upon the economics Y'all should be on TV a lot more. Hell, fuck it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I really don't know why. Uh, uh, that's because it's white people who run numbers behind the scenes. And as we all know, white people can't do numbers that well. So <laughs> <laughs> that's really the problem. It's just, the, the white people who are behind the scenes are too stupid to understand the numbers in front of the scene. And I get it. You'd rather make a safe decision than one that may be uh, uh uh, low investment, high return because there's still uh, a risk involved. Like, oh, if I put this Indian person on TV and it doesn't work out well, it's going to be because they're Indian. Uh, I'm going to look like an asshole. I might as well just put this safe white thing on TV. And if it fails, it fails because not because of some shit I did, but because, you know, the market said this, this is bad, not me. Right, right. So that's really, that's really what it is. But, and I, that's why I think representation behind the scenes matters almost as matters more almost than representation in front but the instant we get fucking uh bowen yang and and, and uh, bowen yang is the only person that, that i can think of right now but, but like ali wong and those like shang wang shang is great shang, sh like those i people. just saw it's now i'm just naming all of my asian friends but helen hong she was just in she was in a uh she was in a commercial recently oh shit so there's a lot of yeah she's doing great uh new york she was a new york based stand-up right helen yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, the instant we get them behind the scenes or our types behind the scenes to uh, understand, oh shit, we are a huge buying power. Uh, we love seeing our own people on camera yeah, and, uh, and small screen, big screen, fucking Spotify, whatever the fuck, uh, that'll, that'll just happen. It's just going to take time because up until this point, all of us, myself excluded, and you know, the people you name excluded. We're busy becoming financiers and engineers and doctors and all that and lawyers and all that kind of shit. Like we were busy. We didn't this this path of success, this path to becoming uh, uh, making it in America was not a path that was known to us in, until, you know, last 20 years, last 15, 20 years. With that, do you think it's because by nature, the path of being an entertainer, it is kind of a privilege to even have it as an option? When people are starving and shit has hit the fan, there is some entertainment going on, but you have to, uh, you got to change it up. Stand up is not going to be, mm -mm. it's not going to put food on the table in economic despair times. As we all know, you broke for a long time. Yes, sir. When you do stand up. So there's a certain amount of, 
My, my father's from Germany. I'm a first-generation American as well. And he was a truck driver. And without that truck driver base, I can't go into the arts. No. Even that little, just that little base you had to have yeah. just to be able to even say, I'm going to do theater. It's like, it's an asinine idea. <laughs> Did your parents, when you when you told your parents that you wanted to do comedy, were they were they a little bit shocked by that? Because <laughs> I know with my friend Cena, his parents, and this is not a sob story, but they made him go to law school uh -huh. and thank God for it. But the idea, because he's a first generation uh, Iranian, the idea of pursuing stand up is like, what? Wait, what are you doing? But it really does. It's kind of a, it's an amazing opportunity that you can have to do it when you are established enough. My parents were a lot like you would expect in the sense of, you're doing what? We spent all this money for you to go to school and now you're going to do this. So you're going to have a job or, and it's just like, nope, 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 nope. And, it, and luckily, like, it's it's worked out yeah uh you know i haven't i haven't fully returned their investment uh just yet but i i'm hoping to do so soon but it's been it's because uh uh that they they know that there are some paths to success in life that are guaranteed like you are always working if you're a doctor right it, it, pandemic or no pandemic doesn't matter. You're likely always going to be working. Uh, and, and that's why they push you in that direction. That's why they push me in that direction uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, uh, and, and on top of that, they didn't see in their own eyes that entertainment is a path that someone could achieve. Because there was no representation on television for them. Exactly. Exactly. Except a poo. <laughs> and my dad's like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> right. You don't want to do that. Trust me. <laughs> I'm doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. You know, the more I think about the Apu thing, and I, I've thought about it a little bit, I think it was because it was the singular representation, right? If there was every other show had an Indian character, mm -hmm. then people would be like, ah, oh, Apu, he's just a fun, he's a part of the milieu of mm -hmm. being an Indian American. But the fact that it was like the only image. And maybe the first. I understand. It, and maybe the first. Mm -hmm. So that can be. You only have one opportunity to make a first impression, and I suppose the the Indian American first impression was they work at a convenience store. But again, as you said, I also uh, that's a fantastic job, and and thank you for everyone who works at a convenience store. <laughs> yeah, man, I go there all the time. Every my day, my fat ass is constantly I there. Clap, I clap for my dad and all his friends. <laughs> yeah, you know? nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, a poo, man. I mean, uh, I, I would love. I haven't had this conversation with Hardy yet. Uh, I would love to have it with him. And when I saw that documentary, however long ago it was, I was a little mad I wasn't invited to, to speak. Yeah. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
did you think it was because it wouldn't fit the narrative or i uh, know i think it's just because everyone else in that in that was in that documentary was a lot higher profile than i was right i, I think it was like four or five years ago this was pre me getting snl pre me like oscar shit it was like uh uh it was hassan it was a perna i think like two other people fantastic yeah but I, like even that like even that when i watch it again or like some scenes from it, i'm just like i didn't grow up any in any way shape or form the way hassan or hurry or aperna did like I, i'm fairly certain or mindy like i'm fairly certain they grew up one of the only indian people where they are right i, I grew up in fucking jersey i grew up in parsippany new jersey like surrounded by indian people and, and, and so like to me indianness was not a, a novelty i was I, everything i did was indian right like i, I grew i grew 40 indians in my senior class of high school 22 patel 22 patels yeah man so it's like it, it wasn't it wasn't oh my god we were and i, I didn't know any of them so you know, like like i wasn't related to any of them so it, it to me like uh you when you discount when you get the opinion of someone who grew up uh uh being made fun of because they were indian you're getting the opinion of someone who didn't grow up surrounded by indian people if you ask any of those other patels in my high school class you have a problem with the poo or how did you grow up like yeah we got made fun of here and there but who didn't but like my one of my close friends' dads worked at a ca- as a convenience store clerk. It would have been like, oh, what do you, why would you have a problem with a poo? Yeah, I mean, he's got a goofy accent, but you know, uh, my dad works at the Krausers down the street. You want you want to go get ice cream there? You know that that's how it was. Right, different upbringing. Right, and uh, uh, that's that representation matters. Absolutely. So you had to, are you done doing colleges? <laughs> no, because I remember J- John Stewart even got wait not was it John Stewart. No, it was Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I just I, John Stewart. I actually tweeted this yesterday in my Patron drunkenness. He is the soul of the nation because I was watching him speak in Congress because I was in the back, in the back of my Uber and I was watching him talk about the uh, about the 9-11. Um, it, it, John Stewart has done some great work for 9-11 rescue workers that I know they yeah. still don't have health benefits. John Stewart's a fantastic man mm-hmm. and I miss him and I'm excited to have him back because our nation needs him. But when it comes to uh, colleges, I know you got into what, what? Okay, so what happened at this college where people were so upset with you? <laughs> Asians happened, man. Asians. That's what it was. It was all. <laughs> what Asians. does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, oh uh, Ben. Like uh, I'll, I'll, I'll only recall recall this story with you because you were a dear friend. But I'm like almost done talking about it. Oh, we don't have to do it. That I don't even no, want to hear. It. No, no, I'll talk about it because it uh, because you're my guy. Uh, uh, it was Columbia University, uh, 2018, November 2018. Wow, this is, sounds like you're 9/11. You have this like down. You're like the time was 7:58 p.m. I, I had a burger it, that morning. You know why I remember it distinctly? It was November 30th. You know why I remember it distinctly? Because it was a week after I gotten engaged. Oh, <laughs> so so it, it, the timeline is all, and and, and it, I'll bring it back to that in a second. It was November 30th, 2018. Like six, seven months after I've been uh, let go from SNL, um, and they had brought, they had invited me back in May of 2018, like my last month at SNL. So like, hey, we're big fans. Like, you're the first Indian ever write uh, for SNL. Like, we'd love for you to come perform at our show in November. 
and it's the Asian American. You're the first Indian to ever write at SNL? To my knowledge, yeah. Holy crap. I think Vanity okay. Fair or Variety wrote that shit, and no one's ever corrected it, so I stand by it. Yeah, uh, why not? If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. No, it's uh, all good. Um, uh, but yeah, and to this day, I think the only Indian ever right at SNL. I ruined it for everybody. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> Lauren's like, no, no more of those, please. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you stunk up the office, and, you know. Oh <laughs> man, I did though. I would have Indian. That's food. I would have Indian food every Tuesday. <laughs> well, you have to represent, of course. That's good. And uh, and so uh, they invited me to do the show, and it's called the Culture Shock Festival. Like it's like a, a lot of these schools, and I bring up bringing this ties into growing up Indian. Like at my high school, we would have these types of festivals. We would have like uh, once a year a giant Indian cultural club festival where like every Indian in town and their parents and every Indian with the high school, we'd put on this giant show for everyone to come and like there'd be dances, uh, uh, theatrical performances, um, uh, uh, all kinds of shit. Yeah. And so and so this is like I'm walking into my element. You know what I mean? Like I know I know I know this world. I know these students. This is me fucking uh, 20 years ago. And so I'm like, this is going to be cake. Walk in. I'm the last act of the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm closing the whole thing. Before me, there's poetry. There's fucking break dancing. There's <laughs> a fashion show. There's all this kind of shit. And so I'm like, and I watched the whole thing. I'm like, oh, this is great. There's 400 kids there. This is dope. Go up. And I immediately sense, I know going in, this is a college show. And that these kids, these students, mind you, I, I got to stop saying kids uh, because they're all 18 plus. Yeah, yeah. They're adults. So. Uh, and I, I can already sense there's a little tension when I go up. But why was there tension? I'm, there's tension. I might be projecting, but I could feel I felt tension in the room. Okay. Because of like, oh, shit, a comedian uh, who uh, we don't necessarily know. We never heard of. Uh, let's see what kind of jokes he's going to have. And I open and I, the whole set is on YouTube. The whole set. The okay. entire thing is on YouTube. Uh, I put it out. Uh, so that no one could ever say, oh, he's lying about whatever. No, the whole thing is that you can watch for yourself exactly what happened. I go up and I'm like, oh, this is going to be strange. I already got a feeling. Uh, I talk about, you know, having applied to Columbia and being rejected. I went to a Columbia University summer program. I get into my set and admittedly, it's low energy, but I'm still doing my bits. Right. And yeah. I'm doing it. I'm not crushing but I'm doing well enough where I'm like, oh, this is fine. This is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. It's not dead air for fucking every fucking thing I say. Yeah, yeah. And and in the back of my head is the fact that the people that booked me, who were three uh, young college students, have presumably seen my act. Right. I would think so. I would hope so. <laughs> I'm at the cellar every night. They booked me knowing I'm a stand-up. Between May and November, there's ample opportunity to just be like, hey, we'd love to see your set, you know, check you out, whatever. So I'm just doing all my bits and I have to do an hour. I'm like, all right, well, I got to do all my bits. I got to fill an hour. Yeah. And uh, I've spent some time and I'm working on taping an hour to submit to, you know, Comedy Central and Netflix and all that kind sure. of shit. That's why I have a camera crew. There. So I'm like, OK, uh, this is obviously not going to be what I submit, but let, at least I have a dry run of what I'm gonna be fucking saying. Mind you, an hour later, I'm doing UCB. Uh, I booked a UCB show that same night to do the hour again. Oh, my God. You were hustling that night. Yeah. So because that that night I was like, oh, this is going to be the dry run. I'll do another hour after this. And it's going to be a crowd that I invited. So it's going to be hot. I know the room. It's going to be fun. So 
like 20 minutes into the set, uh, I do the joke. I do a joke about um, how being gay can't be a choice because no one would choose to be gay if they're already black. Right. And, 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 and which is, which is a joke I've told at matchless, like six, seven years prior. Yes. You know, like I've, I've, I've done well with it at matchless six, seven years prior. Um, and I had stopped doing it because two years after I had done it, uh, Solomon Giorgio came to matchless and did a very similar joke. I'm not saying he stole or anything like that. He's gay and black. And so he had a very similar area. Right. And, and Danny came up to me. and was like, Hey man, ain't that your joke? I was like, that no, that to me in my head, that just means it's hacky. There's no way he saw it. We didn't steal it from each other. It's- I think that joke joke theft is often very, very overrated. Yeah, yeah. Comedians do that all the time, and oftentimes it's like that's just a pretty basic joke about jerking off. Exactly. And so I had stopped doing that joke, but I wanted to do it again. A because I need to fill the time, right? And B because uh, I had I had made a joke about Mike Pence being gay, yeah. and I wanted to say that hacky statement in a way that wasn't being said the same way everyone else was saying Mike Pence is gay. And so I said that the only person who chooses whether or not to be gay on a daily basis is Mike Pence. Okay, Mike Pence chooses to not be gay every single day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and <laughs> he, um, he call. I mean, you know, there was he calls his wife mother yeah. and. Uh, to relax on Fridays, he has a slice of pizza and a no duels. Uh, what all God fearing, very straight American men do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I, so the, the, the first part bombs, the gay black thing bombs. There's a little, there's a little, like you can almost feel like, oh shit, that's really tense. And the, the Mike Pence part hits. Um, and then I'm like, okay, I can physically feel that there's like a weirdness in the room. And, but you yeah. know, there's still laughs and stuff. And then I start, then I engage with a, um, a crowd member, like this 19 year old, 20 year old. Oh, you did crowd work. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm in comedian mode. Right. I'm not, I'm not in college show fucking shucking. I'm just like, I'm just doing what I would do at the cellar. If something bombed and I wanted to fucking pivot into something else. Right. I'm talking to a young woman up front and, uh, uh, I get, I, I'm pulling information from her. Mind you, she's like 19, 20 years old. So I'm, and I'm not asking like, hyper personal questions i'm just asking like i'm just asking questions based off what she said to me like well, i'm talking about how my dad landed in newark she tells me she's from newark and then i go make some jokes about newark she says she doesn't know her dad i'm like oh well, i don't you know her dad just joke like yeah it's not a joke but it's like i'm not saying it why don't you know your father you know i'm just like trying to get some trying to move into some other fucking bit trying to do some com- psychic comedy stuff where you're just like i just need some information to help me out so we can get through this together please <laughs> exactly I'm, tr- I'm i'm fucking i'm i'm doing what any comedian would do in that situation where they're trying to pivot and and dismount with slightly gracefully and it's just not graceful <laughs> <laughs> it's not graceful uh right I'm and as i'm doing that the three uh, women that invited me to do the show, the three costumes invited to do to invite me to do the show, come on stage. Oh, uh, and that's that's the they that's when they like literally tell me I gotta go. I ask them why, and then one of them volunteers that that gay black joke they didn't feel I was entitled to make, and I was like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? Like, I distinctly remember being at Stand Up New York doing like a check spot or a guest spot. And coming up with that bit because there was a gay black guy in the audience and he reacted and then I reacted to him as like, oh, that's how you know you can't be gay because you would never choose to be 
gay if you're already black. And he died of laughter. So I was like, oh, this is fucking right. gold. I'm a genius. <laughs> 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 I've done it, Jerry. I've done it. You know, you know, and so and so I tell that to them, and then they're like, they give me some other shit that I don't remember. Ask me if I have closing remarks. Closing remarks? What are you on trial? Bro, let me tell you, it felt it was fucking preposterous. <laughs> and my only regret, my regret is that I wasn't funnier in my in my retorts with them like i was so shocked at what was going on that i was immediately went from stop being funny to just be calm and composed because if i get crazy this is going to be fucking preposterous right there's definitely some little twerp recording this shit right now and so i was just like let me be calm and uh try to be uh, uh diplomatic about what's happening right now and uh i did a i did a joke uh, I weaved into a joke in conversation uh, that I had done on Seth uh, like three months prior. Yeah, Seth, Seth Meyers show. show. Light, yeah. light, so you, basically the least offensive thing you can do. Right. I just said, you know, there's a lot of tension between white people and black people, Asians and Indians. We're all going to have to choose a side at some point if a race war ever pops off. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and, and, and that got nothing. And I was like, all right. And then, and then oh, the my. tech guy cut my mic. Jesus. And, uh, and then I had to go, and they escorted me out. And uh, uh, the escort was the funniest thing in the world because it was like, a, literally like a five foot two Asian girl like was like, "We need to escort you out, like because like of security and stuff." And I was like, "What do you think? Security? I'm a, you think I'm gonna fight somebody? <laughs> what is happening? What Why the- is everything escalating so much?" I'm like, "You guys are crazy. I'll bounce." My camera crew is like. Uh, what the fuck just happened? I'm like, bro, I have no fucking idea. Let's just get the fuck out of here. Um, uh, and then I went to UCB, and I, and I in the back of my head, I'm like, I I I haven't even fully processed what uh, just happened. I wish I had just gone up and talked about it at UCB, yeah, uh, immediately after. But I, in my head, I'm still thinking I got still have to record an hour, right? <laughs> so so I did that. And then, you know, uh, over a matter of like two, two weeks, it, it went from a non-story to viral to I had to, I wrote a New York Times op-ed about it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, man. So what, how did it go viral again? Did somebody release it? Was somebody filming from the, I mean, I'm sure people film constantly. So it was, it was because so the, the, the Columbia Spectator, the fucking the Columbia newspaper, uh, a few a few of their, well, I think one of their coverage writers was there, and they wrote about it. And then uh, once they wrote about it, Columbia's got a huge journalism alumni community, right? And uh, 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 some Columbia alum who was a right wing journalist picked it up and made her own version of it. And she's got like 15, 20,000 followers and is verified on Twitter. Okay. So once she wrote about it, it went viral in the right wing community. And then it was just and, like. Well, okay. So the right wing, was it in defense of you? Of or course, was it yeah, like, there, look at this demon? It was. No, it was. It was in defense of you know, university students gone mad again. Freedom of speech under okay. attack. And I was just like. I don't want to be your poster boy, you know, like this is exactly right. Dude, that's that's fascinating, though, because obviously, again, I, you know, I ablings top at my political program, political pawns, man. It's brutal when you find yourself being used as one. And then you have to be like, I don't want to be I don't want I am not the face of the first 
uh, you know, amendment movement. The freedom of speech is, by the way, it's here. It, we're all right. We're doing it right now. Right. The fact that that, is, that was the one thing. I don't even really mention the, the personal stuff. But anyone who was like, white men can't talk. It's like there's a lot of white men who get paid a lot of money to talk. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just simply not factually accurate. Say whatever you want. Right. And, of course, there's going to be some consequences if you say whatever. You know, that's just how it's supposed to work. That's, that's the machine. The, that's called a conversation, right? Right. But then you're used as a poster boy for the far right. And you're like, and so you're getting yelled at by the left. And then all of a sudden the right is like, he's our guy. And you're like, what the hell? I'm just trying to be a comedian. I'm just, I regret that joke so much because, because I was, I was on Breitbart. They featured me on Breitbart. Oh Tucker, my God. Tucker Carlson emailed me. Oh my God. It was brutal, man. Tucker found you. Tucker. I mean, Tucker, Tucker hit me twice. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I, I can't, I'm not coming on your show. That's a no win situation. I'm not at the, if I were, if I were, you know, a, a lot further along in my career, I definitely would have gone on that show where it wouldn't have hurt me. Uh, but I felt like going on that show or any program beyond where I know I will be on not neutral ground, but at least ground where I can say whatever the fuck I want. Right. Uh, that's why I did. I did Rogan after that. Rogan was the only podcast. I was like, I'm only going to do Rogan if he hits me up. Uh, otherwise, uh, the op-ed will be enough. And that, that's all I wanted to say. It was just like I, I wanted it to go away. So that it wouldn't define me. Right. Because right. now, because for like a year or two, it was just like, that's the Columbia kid. That's like, yo, you're the Columbia. And when I say I want to bring it back full circle, uh, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Ohio over uh, uh, over pandemic when when Dave Chappelle was doing his shows at, at Yellow Springs, yeah. his, his comedy yes. Woodstock. Uh, che invited me out and uh, I'm in the green room at uh at his shows and dave comes up to me and he's like man i didn't neil he was talking to neil brennan yeah. and neil told me uh uh you're the you're a, you're a comedy gangster oh that's so <laughs> and, funny and, and, and i was and i was and he told me he told me he's like um he's like i have a very similar bit and i was like i i've been told that i've i've heard so i've heard uh, a lot of people say that you have something like that solomon is something like that and and he didn't he didn't he wasn't implying oh you fucking jacked it from here or anything like that he was just saying uh what happened they tried to fucking kill you man they tried to cancel you and didn't happen and and i told him and my wife at the time who and we were getting married like the next week on our roof yeah was with me when dave was talking to me and i told dave i was like man that happened a week after we got engaged and uh and he goes he's and he says you guys are just Force gumping your way through comedy. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, guess we fucking on. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> three years later, about to get married, talking to Dave about uh, something that happened a week after we got fucking engaged. But you know what, man? I mean, and thank you for sharing that story because I actually never really heard it before. You know, you, you, you turned it all around. And I think that's what's so important. And I hope that you don't regret that joke because, you know, that joke brought you to this conversation yeah. and you got to write that op-ed and Dave Chappelle called you a comedy gangster. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and you're right, and it's not defining. It's fucking awesome, man. That's part of your story. And you're I right. think uh, any every comedian, I was booed off stage multiple times. <laughs> um, thank God they only had the Nokia phone and people were too busy playing the game Snake, Snake. and I don't right. even think they had cameras on them and... Uh, <laughs> So comedians, that's what you do. You're supposed to go explore the world. And uh, it's unfortunate when people, that was the thing with Trump. 
people lost sight of like I'm supposed to be a com comedian, but the our the clown is the the biggest clown in the country's president, and it made it very difficult to be like I'm trying to tell jokes. Right. My heart is good. I'm trying to make people laugh and point out things. But when we had the biggest jackass bully clown in the world as president, just put comedians in a very it put us in a pickle. And then all of a sudden, we're supposed to be the news? Right. We're supposed to be comedy. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the news, too. <laughs> I like to tell some jokes as well. Fuck yeah, man. The news is for fucking boring people. Not anymore, unfortunately. It's for people who are just, man, that was so sad. The pandemic, man, watching what, what happened to people's brains, consuming all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Nonstop. It poisoned this whole country, man. I had to, I turned it off, and I, I'm, I think I'm better for it. I think so. It was, it was obvious to me what was going to happen when uh, uh, we were all going to be trapped inside. Ugh. And that was people were going to go fucking bananas. Yep. Yes. They were just going to sit in front of a team. And, you know, I'll tell you this. The first week, the first week of uh, when, after shit got shut down, I literally caught myself becoming that. Yeah. You know, like when everyone was sharing all the news on all the, the group chats and all the fucking emails, all the shit. And I was I was just spending hours sitting there, yeah, flipping through this, and I was like, "What is happening?" And then at one point, I was like, "I've been on my phone for two hours. I have not looked up, and uh, I'm terrified of what's going to happen with pandemic. I got to put my phone away." Yeah. And I, at that point, I decided I was like, "You know what? I'm not watching shit. I'll check in like once a week if I have to. Yeah. And I'll I'll pay attention to the big headlines, but none of this shit is going to uh, uh, change the way I behave." Yeah, I think Bill Burr, Bill Burr handled it very well too from a uh, from a comedic perspective. He, I think he did it in a way where uh, he, what he just said, he checks the CDC every two weeks. It's you tell me to wear a mask, okay? <laughs> and let's just get through. We we just have to white knuckle our way through this stuff. Just drive through the storm. Yeah, and uh, and we're doing it, and you did it. And uh, it's just so great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Anytime. I fucking love talking to you. And and uh, I hope you my regards to uh, Zabrowski and Marcus. Little, and little fat and tall, thin. I will. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I'll do it. <laughs> and I, I can't wait to see you, dude. We'll uh, we'll have to get together. Soon. I'm going to be I'll be in L.A. Uh, 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 June 8th and 9th. Awesome. I'm doing San Diego uh, June 10th or 12th, but uh, 8th and 9th, I'll be there just hanging out. So let's let's link. Dude, I can't wait. Um, all right, everyone. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this wonderful conversation with Nimesh Patel. You can just search his name and, uh, and you can find everything that he's done. And uh, yeah, he's just fantastic. So thank you all so much for listening. Hope everyone is happy and safe and healthy and doing all, doing the best you can out there. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.